Thank you to the music team leading us with faithfulness and excellence. That verse you opened with, Mike, is a verse I'm going to be talking about tonight at some level, so I didn't even plan that. I love when that happens. That's a staggering thought, isn't it? That we're singing to the holy God of Isaiah 6. You ever think about that? That the God that the angels cover their faces, the angels have never sinned, by the way, and they cover their faces, they're unworthy to speak of Him. And that transcendent God, they, they, they praise Him around His throne, ascribing holiness to Him, and that we stand here today as His beloved children, and His holiness does not consume us. Isn't that staggering? And we can praise Him, and, and now because we're in Christ, we're clothed in Christ, we, we're renewed, and we can praise Him for His holiness. Uh, man, it's just a staggering thought. So thank you for that, that song, both those songs. Um, very sweet. Sweet tonight. Well, it's good to be back together on Thursdays. I'm glad you enjoy it. Uh, I certainly do. And if you're new here tonight, my name is Clay. I am one of the pastors here at Timberlake. Serve alongside Rich Brown, the guy that was up here at the beginning. He's one of the elders here and uh, oversees Boundless with me. And we would love to meet you tonight if we haven't already, so please don't be shy. Introduce yourself. I've seen some new faces already. i uh, met some new folks already, so thanks for, uh, thanks for that. Don't hesitate to come find me after service. Well, if you were here on Sunday morning, how many of you were? Just raise your hands. Okay. You're here. I'm talking about Boundless Sunday morning, okay? And that's like not the main event. It's the sub-event, but... Um, if you were here on Sunday morning, you probably remember that uh, I gave you my, my spiel, right? I gave you my, if I could tell you one thing speech. And I said that if I could tell the new Christian college student just one thing, if we could only have one conversation, it would be to try to convince them that they have to prioritize the local church. Or we could say it differently, we would try to get them to see that LU, even though it's a Christian university, is not enough for your thriving in Christ. And if you weren't there, we gleaned some reasons why we need to prioritize the church from the Apostle Paul, and in particular from his letter to the Ephesians. Now, I'm not going to re-preach that message, but I am going to give you a recap, because it's kind of the intro for this message, all right? You can listen to it on on the website or on our app, but let me just hit the highlights right here because it's going to set us up for tonight. So why should we prioritize the church? We we looked at some reasons, and we saw that the church, kind of the first one, is that the church is a huge deal to God. So if it's a huge deal to Him, it needs to be a huge deal to us, uh, the members of the church. Before God ever created the world, Ephesians 1, Before he ever did that, he chose the church, it says, verse 3, and he wrote the church into the climax of his plan. Then, at the proper time in history, he slaughtered his own son to create the church, to, to bring us into existence. 
And his plan now includes using his church, this ragtag group of people, to showcase his wisdom to the entire cosmos, including the angels and principalities and powers. That was Ephesians 3. God has a lot invested in this project called the church. He's promised to build it, and he's promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It's a huge deal to him, and he intends it to be just as as big a deal to us today. That was first reason. But we also saw that when someone comes to Christ, second reason, when someone comes to Christ, they've been saved into the church by default. In other words, our fundamental identity as Christians is bound up with God's people in the universal church. We're not saved in isolation. We're added to a people, his people. And according to Paul, that membership in the universal church is supposed to work itself out at the local level. When Paul made converts in a city, what did he do? Did he leave them? No. He gathered those converts in that particular location, gathered them together. He appointed particular leaders over that congregation. And he expected those people in that area to keep meeting together, to love each other, to forgive each other, to to live out the truth together in love for each other and evangelize the people around them. That's a local church. So in other words, for Paul, salvation meant that they must gather together consistently and locally in an organized structure that he called the church. So a churchless Christian, then, is a contradiction for Paul. There's no such thing. So we should prioritize the church because, whether we realize it or not, we're already part of the universal church, and that should be worked out locally. We saw third, then, that the church itself is uniquely designed by God to transform his people. So according to Ephesians 4, if you want to change, you need to be in the church. It's the ideal environment to conform us to Christ according to many texts, but especially Ephesians 4. He's given the church pastors to equip the saints, and he's gifted those saints, you and I, with gifts to be used for building up the body. So this means then that it's the local congregation, not the dorm, not Convo, not campus community, not the counselor's office. It's the local church that's the ideal growing environment for the believer. And finally, last reason we should prioritize the church from Sunday, is we saw that the church protects us from spiritual danger. Right? So that's kind of the, the, the backside of reason number three. We could say it like this, we are in grave danger if we don't commit to and prioritize the church in our lives. Young believers are immature, undiscerning, and they're often blown about by winds of doctrine, says Paul in the same chapter of Ephesians 4. And that's why we need a faithful church that will help us navigate these pitfalls. And we saw last week that LU is not immune to false doctrine, It's not immune to wayward influences. So God has designed the church to serve as an antidote to increase your discernment so that you can stay faithful in the world and in the university. 
So for those reasons, and that's just kind of bare minimum, okay, there's a lot more we could talk about, but just for those reasons, I said you should prioritize the church on Sunday. Better yet, Paul said you should prioritize the church on Sunday. And I spoke to a number of you after that message, and you said that you were convinced that you really do need to make the local church a priority. Praise God. But now, especially you new folks, you're faced with another question. Right? And that question is, how in the world do you pick one? Lynchburg alone, according to one website I looked at, it has at least, anybody want to guess? What's that? Wow, you guys are really ambitious. I don't know, maybe I was looking at a bad website. I only got 76 from the website. <laughs> Anticlimactic, right? 76 established churches, okay? There's not counting the church plants and kind of the spinoffs of the next guy at LU who's wanting to do his thing in Lynchburg. Sorry, that was off script. <laughs> kind of revealed how I felt about that, but... Um, that 76 churches, just established churches, and that's just in the city. All right, so you could... That means then that if you were church hopping, you could visit a church every Sunday for the entire year, multiple years probably. So, it's a big decision. You've got lots of choices. But for as significant of a decision as this is, what is amazing to me, you ready for it, is how people make this decision. Do you know the number one thing I hear when I ask people what they're looking for in a church? Any guesses? Yes. The music, well, usually it's framed up a little more spiritual. They say um, it's worship, right? Worship. Uh, or the worship. But when I dig a little deeper, like you guys said, it often comes down to, to, to this. It comes down to how they feel when they are singing. Right? How they feel when they're singing. If they feel good, they decide to give it another Sunday. Uh, if they don't feel good, they're not inspired uh, so they go somewhere else. They don't like the vibe. I've also heard college students say that they're looking for a place where the Spirit's really at work. Or the Spirit's moving, right? I wanna, hey, I want to be in a place that the Spirit's at work too. I'm not slamming that, okay? But we probably mean different things. What they mean is usually where the people are excited and they seem in tune with their inner promptings and the messages are really authentic. Is that fair? The only problem with this is that the criteria that they use are a little bit subjective, aren't they? Even some of, their other, uh, even some of the other qualities that people look for are a, more based in their experience rather than in something that's sort of fixed and objective. So things like the friendliness of people, the vibe of the music, contemporary versus traditional. The way people dress in a church, formal, informal, things like that. People often adopt and then use this kind of, we'll call it experiential criteria, to make a decision about church. You value something in a church because it's important to you, kind of the bottom line. You think something's important, you value it, and that's kind of what you make your decisions by. But in these conversations, what's often not asked at least initially, is the most important question. And it's not what's important to you. 
but it's what's important to God. It's not, do I think the Spirit's moving in the church according to my criteria, but it's, is the Spirit truly at work in this church according to Scripture? You see, God's been very clear about what He wants His church to be and to do. He's been very clear about how you can know the Spirit is active in a congregation, about whether or not a church is healthy or unhealthy. And the good news is that God desires to give you clarity from His Word so that you are equipped, so that you're equipped to make a good and a wise decision on which church that you should commit to, which church you should prioritize during these college years. So how do you know if a church is healthy? Over the next two Thursday nights, we want to try to give you a crash course on some of the evidences of health in a church. All right, so that's going to be where we're going. We want to help help you see what these evidences are. And it's our goal to give you some benchmarks, some objective biblical criteria so that you can make a decision with confidence. Remember, there are no perfect churches. We are all in progress because we bring our sin into the church. So if we're looking for a perfect church, we might as well stay home because the moment we enter it, we defile it. Right? Yet, there is such a thing as a healthy church. And we want to try to equip people to be able to identify one when you see it. All right, now the last thing I'll say before we get into it is if you've been here a while and you're thinking, wow, he says this stuff a lot. Um, Some of you are thinking that. I hear the chuckles. All right, this is still crucial for you. Why? Because if, if you've been here a while, you want to know these evidences of health and the passages behind them so that you can help equip your roommates, your friends, your classmates to make wise decisions too. Unhealthy churches can do a lot of harm, and false churches can lead people astray in the name of Christ. So, out of love for others, you're going to want to try to influence them toward a healthy place. And it's any healthy place that meets these criteria. This is not a this is not a try to pad TBC's college ministry sermon. Um, this is any healthy church that, that meets these criteria will be a blessing to your soul. And to be able to influence your friends, you're going to need to be able to articulate what we're going to cover over the next two weeks. All right? Does that sound good? Let's jump in. To keep things simple, since it's a crash course, I'm going to restrain myself to four evidences that a church is healthy. Okay? Four big ones. And tonight, we're only going to cover one. Make it even more simple. Okay? So you're thinking, this is going to turn into a three-part series. I know it. I know it. It's not. It'll be two. We'll work it. We'll work it into that. All right. The first and arguably the most important evidence of health in a church is, you ready for it? Devotion to Scripture. I thought, wow, I came here. That was a big buildup for that. Devotion to Scripture. A church that's truly devoted to Scripture, a church that has a high view of God and of His Word, this kind of church is a healthy church, or it will become 
a healthy church if they maintain that devotion over time. So let's take, a, let's take a minute and really, really the rest of our time and work out this evidence here. Let's put a text on it. There's a lot of text, man, we could go to, but let's, we're going to keep it simple. Acts 2.42. So turn over to Acts 2.42. Did you know that, the, that this verse is the very first description of the very first church in the New Testament. All right. Very first description of the very first church in the New Testament. So we're not there. We're in Acts 2.42. And in this text, the author is Luke. And the first thing he says that this church body did after they came to Christ was that they, look, in 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. He says other things. And the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. We'll get to the rest of that later. But they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. For now, what I want you to see is that the very first description of the very first church is that they were devoted, they were utterly committed, they held fast to and oriented their lives around what? The apostles' teaching. Scriptures, as we're going to see. Now, if we can take a step back in this context, we're going to see something that's even more dramatic. We'll be able to kind of talk to that person that wants to, to go to a spirit-filled church. Okay? This kind of devotion to the apostles' teaching is something that the Spirit has produced. Tracking? Or we could say it like this. The very first evident, evidence that the Spirit was moving in this church the very first fruit that he produced is devotion to the truth in the church. Luke doesn't say it was an emotion, although I'm sure they felt emotions. <laughs> it was an excitement, although I'm sure they were excited. It was a dogged commitment to the teaching of the apostles. They were so committed to it that a few chapters later they're going to suffer for it and some people are going to die for it. So what's the context here? Well, if you were to go back to chapter 1, you would see that Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, he told his apostles to go back to Jerusalem to wait for the promised Spirit. This Spirit would then empower them to be effective witnesses. Or in other words, they would empower the apostles to share the truth about Jesus to others. At Pentecost, Acts 2, Jesus made good on His promise and He poured out His Spirit on the apostles. Then Peter preached his first Spirit-empowered sermon in the rest of Acts 2. And he ended with a call to the Jews, the Jews who had crucified Jesus, he ended with a call to, for them to repent and trust in Christ. So let's pick it up at Acts 2.37. 
Now when they had heard this, those are the Jews, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And notice what comes next. And you will receive the gift of the what? Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, that's the promise of the Spirit, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So what happened? Those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So what happened? Peter promised that if these Jews repented and believed in Jesus, that they too would receive the promised spirit. By the way, side note, um, this, quote, promised spirit, this refers to God's promise in the Old Testament to make his people obedient to him by giving them his spirit. You can write down Ezekiel 36 on that. It's God's promise to make his people obedient by, by giving them his own spirit, to give them a new heart. to empower them to keep the law which, which Israel could never keep before. And this new spirit, God's own spirit, would come in conjunction with a new covenant that would be the result of a messianic work, according to the prophets. So that's the promised spirit, and, it, and, it, and, and he's already quoted Joel 2 here in Acts 2, and he's saying this is the, those, we're living in that fulfillment. This promised spirit will be yours if you repent and you, and you entrust yourself to Jesus. And they do that. They did indeed repent. They received his word and were baptized. So what's the implication then? The implication is that the spirit has been given to this group. And then, very next verse, Luke goes on to show us that the fruit of the spirit, if we could call it that, is in Acts 2, as much as it is in Galatians 5. This promised spirit has begun to work obedience in God's people. He's begun to make them obedient from the heart. Let's read all of Acts 2.42 through, through the rest of the chapter with that lens now. And they, as a result of their repentance and, and reception of the spirit, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Israel's never been devoted to God, holistically. But now, all of a sudden, they are. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's an echo to the law and the fulfillment of the law. And they were selling their possessions, another echo, and belongings and, distri and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added their number day by day, those who were being saved. So why, do I, why am I bringing all this out? 
Well, for those of you who, who want to be where the Spirit is really moving, you want to be where His presence is upon that place, right? Well, if you were to ask Luke, how do we know that the Spirit is at work in the church? Guess what he would point to? This passage. And the first thing he would say is that a vibrant, spirit-filled church is devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, it's Acts 2. Let me span out here and throw a bunch of texts at you. Okay? None of them are going to be on the PowerPoint. You're just going to have to listen. Try to grab them. There's a connection between the Spirit and truth. And this connection that we see right here in Acts 2 is very obvious if you know anything about the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls him the Spirit of truth three times in John's Gospel. John 14, 17. John 15, 26. John 16, 13. And then as a bonus, Apostle John in 1 John 4, 6. The Spirit of the truth. I mean, the Spirit is characterized by the truth. He dispenses the truth. Jesus said that after He departed, after Jesus departed, He would give the apostles His Spirit to cause them to remember His own words. And, not just to remember what Jesus said, but also to reveal new revelation to them, to these apostles. That's John 14, 26. And in fact, Jesus appointed these men to even write down the truth for the church. Ephesians 3 talks about that in many other places. So, these men and the group that was with them, these apostles and prophets, they wrote four Gospels, Acts, a bunch of letters, and an apocalyptic document called Revelation, or The Revelation. And if Luke were here today, he would point us to these written texts, even the two volumes of his own, Acts and Luke, or Luke and Acts, he would point us to these written texts and he would say, a spirit-filled church will be devoted to these documents. Why? Because they're devoted to the Lord who inspired them. A healthy church knows that it exists only by the words of the living God. It also knows that it will only grow by continuing to believe those words and orienting its life around those words. So, you want to pick a church that reveres the Lord and His Word. Or as Isaiah 66 says, that trembles at his word. Now you're probably thinking, okay, wow, Clay. That was quite a build-up to a pretty basic point. Isn't that assumed that every church would be devoted to Scripture? I mean, what doctrinal statement would say, we don't believe the Bible? Well, you're right. Most churches would not say that. Sadly, though, this commitment to Scripture is not preserved in a doctrinal statement. 
as important as doctrinal statements are, many churches deny their doctrinal statements in what they practice. So if you're just visiting a church, where might you look for this commitment to Scripture? Where might you look? Okay, just, you're the visiting person. You just show up on a Sunday. You don't know this church very well. How are you going to test their commitment to Scripture? How are you going to evaluate it? Well, the most obvious place to look would be where? In the pulpit, right, in the preacher. In the preacher. Commitment to Scripture is either confirmed or denied most visibly in how the preaching is handled. God's goal for the person teaching is that he make his word clear. That's God's goal for the preacher. He's not novel, creative, but that he makes the scriptures clear. That he brings the implications of those scriptures home for the hearer. That we help you see why these truths matter in your day-to-day life. That's it. Clarity and application. So if you say, okay, I knew that. All right. Well, if you want to drill down a little bit more, my job is to explain to you what that, what that particular Scripture writer intended when he wrote whatever it is that we're, that, we're, that we're teaching from. Does that make sense? We call this, okay, if you want a phrase that we say a lot and some people don't understand because they're new, that phrase is called the authorial intent of Scripture. The authorial intent of Scripture. That just means if the Spirit inspired that human author to write, and he did, and then that human author wrote, and he did, right? Then my job as a teacher to preach the word then is to tell you what he intended when he wrote it. Because his intent as a human author is God's intent. You tracking that logic? This might be new for some of you. I'm not allowed as a pastor to play fast and loose with what the scriptures say. As a teacher, God intends I work hard to understand the author that he himself inspired and then to communicate their meaning to you in a way that's clarifying for you, in a way that you can understand. And the sobering part is that he's going to hold every pastor accountable for how faithful they were to communicate his intentions that he stated so clearly in the scriptures. Now, one more thing just to, to note. This authorial intent is sort of at the heart of this point. Okay? But one more thing to note here is that God not only inspired the words of Scripture, but He also inspired how He gave them to us. Now, what do I mean by that? He did not give us a systematic theology. Like you open to page one, and it's the doctrine of God. I mean, it is, but it's just a narrative form, right? But he didn't give us a systematic theology. 
He gave us an anthology. He gave us an assortment of writings spanning several different genres. And the backbone of this singular book we call the Bible is a narrative, is a story. From creation to the new creation. But faithful preaching will most regularly, it will most regularly preach through entire books of the Bible. That's the cleanest and the easiest way to make sure that you are preaching the intent of the author. So just think about that. When Paul wrote a letter, so Paul's in prison, you know, he's suffering, begging you know, Timothy to come to him and bring the parchment so he can, he can keep writing. And he's sitting there and he's got his pen and paper out and, or quill or whatever it was he's using and he's, he's working on that thing or a, a, a co-worker's working on it for him and he's dictating it to him and they're slaving over this thing. Do you think that Paul, when that letter... He gives that letter to this, his coworker, and that coworker takes it across the Roman Empire and delivers it to the church and he gets there. He's just going to read one verse? Would that communicate his intention to that church? Paul's intention? He wouldn't. He intended the entire thing to be read and explained, to get across his entire intention. To that church. And the same would go for Isaiah, for Moses, Luke, right? And Luke Acts. Their intent is found only when we see the whole. So a church that's committed to Scripture is going to have as their bread and butter what we call sequential exposition. Or some, some say expository preaching, but that word is so used, overused today. And it's applied to so many things that it's hard to know kind of what, what we mean. So I like the word sequential exposition because it means you're, you're expositing something, which just means you're making something clear in a sequence. And that's, I think, best understood as you're going verse by verse through, through a text of Scripture, through a book, through a letter, through a prophecy. They're going to preach completely through entire books of the Bible on a regular basis. It doesn't mean they won't do topical or systematic series like this one that we're in right now. But when they do, they're going to stick with what the author's intent is of those passages that they preach. Like Acts 2.42. So when you hear a sermon, ask yourself, not how did it make you feel? That's a whole other topic. Ask yourself not, how did it make you feel, but did you walk away understanding its meaning in context? Did the pastor take the time to unpack it for you, to show you what that original author intended when he wrote that passage? And did he unfold the significance for you today, how it should change your life? Now, I'm not saying it'll be devoid of feelings. When Jesus preached to the people in the road to on a, you know preached to the people in the road to Emmaus and unfolded the scriptures to them about how he was the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, they said, "Did not our hearts burn within us?" You know when he explained the scriptures to us, our hearts burn when we hear the truth, we see its implications, when the conviction takes root. That's not I'm not anti emotions, but I'm saying what we are aiming at is clarity 
and application. You want to be committed to what the Scriptures actually say, not how you feel about what it says, or not what you want it to say. And that's what commitment to Scripture really looks like. It's what commitment to the God of Scripture looks like, and that's what it looks like in the pulpit. Whether it's the bread and butter is going to be sequential exposition, but it doesn't mean you can't preach topically or systematically or any other way, as long as you're sticking with the core, which is the intention of the biblical authors. I have no authority apart from what God has said in his word. You say, okay. It's starting to become clear. Why are you hammering this? Because today, this kind of preaching is very rare. Instead, many churches who affirm a commitment to the scriptures actually deny it in the preaching. Instead of focusing on the intention of the authors, they focus on other things. Sometimes, well-meaning preachers will simply preach their heart. So, probably not a good idea if you know anything about the heart. (laughs) Don't want to be preaching that. You'd much rather be preaching what God said, right? What they mean is they're preaching with sincerity, but what that usually looks like is very little preparation. Or others... Other pastors, they might, desiring to be relevant to the culture, they spend the majority of their time chasing every cultural issue. And I'm not saying they're not important, that we don't need to address them at times, but they spend their time chasing those cultural issues, issues like social justice, or racism, or diversity, or abuse. Whatever's hot in the culture, whatever the, and usually it's whatever the church is kind of getting hammered about, like, you're racist, you know, or you're abusive, and you're just covering up sex scandals. And it's just, ah, like, let's talk about this. Let's just show the culture that we're not these things. That, oh, we're, we're, we, we hate them too. And, and there's this sort of re- defensive posture, this sort of pandering to try to present well to the culture. They're trying to be relevant. At times show that we're on their kind of right side of history. But still, others might use the pulpit to pander to what the people want instead of what God has said. This can be incredibly subtle. These sermons will have you feeling slightly better about yourself when you leave. They're heavy in encouragement, but at its heart, it usually is about how great you are or how God loves you as you are, or how God wants to make you happy and fulfill you in some way, heal your pain, deal with your emotional trauma, etc., etc. Now again, there's kernels of truth to everything I'm talking about here, which is why it's subtle. But the Bible calls this kind of pandering, this kind of, what do people want? Let me just try to scratch the itch. It calls this the tickling of the ears. And that's not good. That's not a good thing. It's the fear of man. It's it's trying to pander to what people want. And sometimes, this kind of preaching will begin to minimize hard truth. Like calling homosexuality sin. Or it won't dive deep into the nuances of a biblical text that's in front of us that the apostles thought we needed the nuance in. It won't go there. 
that kind of preaching won't go there because it's too controversial. Because people won't come if we do that and our numbers will go down and our budget will suffer and we won't be able to do the fun things that we normally do. And Or they just might fear being offensive or seeming to be too narrow. So in all these ways and more, churches today in practice can jettison their commitment, their devotion to the Scriptures while their doctrinal statements say, we believe in the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture. So when you hear preaching, listen carefully. Is he actually preaching the Bible to you? Do you leave with more clarity? Is it penetrating your life? Is it convicting you and encouraging you? A church's commitment to Scripture will show up most obviously in the preaching. But that's not the only place to look. All right, also look in the singing. We're going to get slowly more controversial in all of these, all these points. Just a heads up. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right, in the singing. You can tell a lot about what a church believes by taking a look at the content of its music. I said content, not style. That's fluid, okay, to some degree. The content of its music. So do you realize that God calls the church to sing, like Mike said, not just, he said vertically, not just to praise Him, as important as that is. That's huge. But he calls the church to sing as a means of instruction. In other words, God intends that we teach each other as we sing his truth set to music. So the verse that Mike quoted was from Colossians 3.16. I just want you to notice this. Idea, right out of the gate. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now you see some participles, some ING words. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Here's another ING word. Singing songs. So why do I bring out the participle? Because that's modifying that main idea of let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's showing that you do this by singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. So Mike's point was exactly right. We are instructing each other. We're letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly when we sing. So that means then that the Lord of the church cares what we sing. He cares about our worship. Just ask Uzzah, right? He's carrying the ark, and he decided to touch it to try to keep it on the thing, and he died. Because God said, don't touch that. God cares about worship, and he cares about what we sing. He wants us singing truth and not error. So now, this might be a really bad analogy, so just bear with me. But imagine singing a love song to your brown-eyed girl when she, in reality, has blue eyes. And you're going on, melodically going on, on and on about her crystal, or, 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 yeah, you, you, get, you, get, you get the point, <laughs> mixing up my own analogy. She's, you're singing about the wrong color of her eyes. Okay, you get it wrong. It's not good. Imagine then singing things about God that are not true. 
or that are hazy and unclear, that are open to error, that's not good. And when care isn't taken to screen what is sung, then it's a telltale sign that commitment to the truth is waning in that church. In years past, most of the church's music was written by pastors or theologians or very smart and gifted poets with a deep commitment to the truth. Songs written today in the modern CCM industry, it reflects the larger biblical illiteracy of evangelicalism. It's just a product of what evangelicalism is. Both they and the songs they write are often more influenced by psychology than Scripture. They know some broad themes of of the Bible, some of our favorite ones to sing about, but many of these bands make much of the worshiper and not of God. So here's what one pastor and author, Tim Challies, said. He said, we are surrounded by churches who treat God as if he is a buddy, not as if he is transcendent. They treat him as if he's chill, not as if he's serious. They treat him as if he's interested in our fulfillment, not his glory. They treat him as if he's ambivalent about how he's worshipped, not as if he's been known to strike dead those who worship him wrongly. We are surrounded by churches that are content to manufacture a God who appeals to ignorant Christians or rebellious non-Christians. And their God is small and safe. Actually, when you look closely, you see that their God bears an uncanny resemblance to them. So, what a church sings reflects what she believes. And it's what she'll take with her when she leaves. It's what she'll take with her humming as she goes. Because music influences and shapes the way we think and relate to God. So a healthy church will demonstrate its commitment to the truth in singing songs that are also true. Alright, so preaching and teaching are pretty obvious. You're going to encounter both those when you visit a church for the first time. But the commitment to Scripture extends below the surface, if you could say it that way, so to speak. You kind of have a more private sphere, a more private ministry, and that would be in the counseling. In the counseling. This might be a little harder to discern, kind of for the first time you're sitting in a, in a public worship service. But it's, it's found in the counseling. So if Step back. If preaching is the public ministry of the word, then counseling is the private ministry of the word. Both are described in scripture. And just to kind of get our definition straight, by counseling, I'm referring to how both the pastors and the mature members of the congregation help those that are less mature grow in Christ. They help them come out of patterns of sin to learn to trust Jesus and become obedient and experience transformation. If you want a text on that, it's Galatians 
the ministry of restoration from sin to usefulness. There's a lot more text we could appeal to, but just again, trying to keep things simple. Galatians 6.1, this counseling ministry, is something given to the church by Christ. And it's also important to know that the Scriptures declare that they are profitable and completely sufficient for our transformation. So listen to what Paul says about them in 2 Timothy. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete. Do you hear that language? Complete. That he'll be almost complete? Kind of fashioned? No, he will be complete. He will actually be equipped for every good work. It's pretty expansive. Paul's saying that the Word of God is sufficient to transform us. Or like Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3, it's sufficient for everything we need for life, spiritual life, and for godliness. 2 Peter 1.3. And they're just echoing their Lord because Jesus said His disciples would know the truth and the truth would set them free. And in that context, He is talking about enslavement to sin. The truth coming from Jesus and his own words, will set them free from a life of enslavement to sin. John 8, 32. The Spirit doesn't just save us then and leave us floundering in sin, even though that's kind of how we feel at times, especially when we're young in the faith, because we are floundering in sin still. But over time, the Spirit works in and through the Word, and He works through this faithful counseling ministry and he actually begins to transform his people and he bears his fruit in their lives, according to Galatians 5. So then, for a church to remain devoted to Scripture, it must also rely on the Scripture alone for the Spirit's working through the Scriptures. For the Spirit's working for transformation in the church like he promises to do through the Bible. Now, said this is going to get more controversial as we went along. About to get more controversial. Okay? I'm about to open a can right now. Sadly, over the last hundred years or so, the failure of the church to care for the souls of the sheep, combined with the rise of psychology as a discipline, has led to a major outsourcing of soul care. Okay? I'll say that again. The failure of the church... There's a lot of reasons for this. Failure. Fundamentalism is one of those. Kind of was focused more on externals. It became focused on externals rather than the inner man. So that shift, combined with the rise of the discipline of psychology, the very recent rise of the discipline of psychology, combined to lead to a major outsourcing of this soul care, this counseling ministry that Christ has entrusted to His church. Many churches and pastors today won't counsel their members, but will instead encourage them toward the professionals, toward psychiatrists, toward therapists, toward psychologists who seek to help them according to their own wisdom, and often not according to Scripture. And the result 
is that many problems the Bible describes as sin, sin that should be repented of, they get relabeled as a mental disorder. So instead of transformation by the Spirit's power through the Word of God, instead of that, they experience treatment. And often, the symptoms are addressed, like medicating depressed feelings, rather than the root addressing the deceptions, the false hopes, and the idols of our hearts as human beings that the Lord can assess through the power and penetrating effect of His Word. Now, since I've opened a can, let me say that obviously not all issues people face are spiritual. Did you hear me just say that? Not every single issue is a spiritual issue that people are facing. And the science has helped us greatly with these ailments and results of the fall. I mean, they're spiritual in the sense that they're a result of our rebellion against God. But my cancer is not because I'm a sinner. Are we tracking? I mean, it is in a really extended way. If you go all the way back to Genesis 3, yes. But it's not directly related to my sin. Now, there's a lot more intertwined between the body and, and the soul and spirit than we realize, okay? So, I'm just, just going to back out of this now because I don't have time to unpack all this, okay? But the sciences help us greatly with these ailments and, and the results of the fall. Medication can be a wonderful thing if it's used rightly and with wisdom. But what I am saying is that churches will quickly in practice undermine their devotion to Scripture by trying to outsource spiritual transformation to those professionals. And when a shepherd refuses to shepherd in private with the Word of God, the sheep are in danger. It's not going to be a healthy place to commit to. But how would you know a church's view on counseling? Right? You show up on Sunday. Be that guy or that girl. Go up to that, it's this important, go up to that pastor when he is done and say, if I were to join your church and ask to be discipled, what would you do? I mean, maybe a little more kindly than that. That, was, that tone was a little uh, intense. <laughs> maybe say, thank you for the message. That was helpful if it was. Don't flatter him, but if it was helpful, tell him. Encourage him a little bit, all right? But ask him, if I were to join your church and I were to ask to be discipled, how, like, what, what's, what would you guys do with that? Or maybe better, if I came to you and said, I'm struggling with depression, or I'm struggling with anxiety, or I have an eating disorder, hypothetically, how would you help me? Would you help me? What would that look like? I mean, you could be more direct. You could ask about their views of psychology and say, well, at what level do you integrate that into your counseling? if you integrate it at all? Could you explain that to me a little bit? So, again, just scratching the surface, so let's take that can and close it. Okay? If you're bugged by me just now, uh, come talk to me. Like, let's, let's have a conversation. I'd love to discuss it with you. I, I, I bug people all the time on this issue. It's kind of, it's okay. Because um, it's very fruitful to talk through. I realize there's 
a whole discipline of psychology, and a lot of you may even be majors in psychology because you want to help people. So let's talk. All right, but there, we've got to wrap this up. Okay, so there's one final way that devotion to the scriptures shows up in the church, and it's in a place that hopefully you can see from day one, and it's in the congregation. It's in the congregation. We're going to end here. So what do I mean? I'm talking about people who are being changed right in front of your eyes. A healthy church will evidence its devotion to the truth in the congregation because the congregation will be growing in their Bibles and they will be growing in obedience to Jesus. So again, Acts 2.42, hopefully you're still there. They're not just devoted to the Scriptures, are they? They're devoted to a lot of other things. The fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers, they're praying for each other, they're fellowshipping with each other, they're caring for each other's needs, we're going to see that later. They're distributing their proceeds. Man, it's radical. They're hospitable to one another. They're generous. Unless it's an unhealthy church that's turning around, a church devoted to the Scriptures will be a congregation of well-taught and discerning people. They will love the Word. They will love to hear it taught. You won't have to force them to eat it because the Scriptures are their delight. It's how they know the God who saved them. It's how they commune with Him. It's how He grows them and how He produces fruit in their lives. And it might take more than one Sunday to encounter this because these kind of people, if they're truly well taught, they're not touting their Bible knowledge. It's actually the opposite. They are humble. Because through their Bible knowledge, they are coming face to face with the triune God who loves them. Who is holy, holy, holy like we sang about. And when the Bible confronts, these kind of people are quick to admit sin. They're quick to own it as the words preached. They don't make excuses for their sin or constantly play the victim. And yet, they're not going around all morbid. Why? Because the same scriptures that convict show the way out of sin. Conviction is for a purpose, to lead us to God. They provide bottomless, these scriptures provide bottomless hope of the love of God in Christ. They assure the broken of God's mercy. They help them see how the Spirit can transform them out of those destructive ways of living. They're not enslaved to them anymore. And likely what you will experience in this healthy church, and something we're going to talk about later next time, what you will likely experience is radical hospitality. It's an openness toward you because of what Christ has done for them. They'll see that you're new. They will come up and talk to you. They'll introduce you to their friend group or invite you to a meal afterward. They'll try to serve you. Why? Because a church like this, a church that's devoted to the Scriptures, are seeking to live a life that manifests that devotion. They're learning to orient their lives around what the Lord has promised and commanded. And so if you're new, ask someone in the church, in, in the church that you're visiting, Ask them, make sure they've been around a while, but ask them, what's the Lord done in your life over the last year? 
How's he been growing you? And just see what they say. If person after person struggles to answer that question, or they answer it in some sort of esoteric way, you know, just kind of like, what are you saying? I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> I don't know what you're saying. Like, show me how the, like, are you changing? Um, if, that, if that's happening, the congregation might not be as devoted to Scripture as you think, or as they think they are. But if you find people saying things like, yeah, I used to think like this, you know, and I heard that sermon series, I, I, I encountered this text in Scripture, and, man, those lies I used to believe, I confronted those lies. And I understood this text, this promise, and Christ set me free in that area. I'm not perfect. My goodness, I still go back to those things, you know, but I'm learning to grow. He's teaching me how to orient my life to this as I learn to trust him. That's money all day long, okay? And if that's coming from the body and as a result of the ministry of the word in that church, that is a healthy, healthy ministry. That is devotion to scripture in real time in the life of a church. All right, so that's the first evidence. That's where we're going to stop today, tonight. Sign of a healthy church, or at least the church that's on its way to health, is that they're devoted to the truth, they're devoted to Scripture. It's going to show up in how they preach, what they sing, how they counsel, and in the lives of the people. So I spent an entire message on this because in, in really in a lot of ways it's foundational what we're going to talk about. Uh, to the rest that we're going to cover next time. So next week we're going to cover three more, and I'll give them to you now. It's devoted to each other. Okay, so kind of piggybacking on what we're talking about here. Devoted to each other. Devoted to shepherding. And devoted to replication. Those are big banner categories, and I'll cover those a lot quicker than I covered this one. Okay? Um, But that's where we're headed. All right, evidences of a healthy ministry. We want you to be discerning, to to be able to choose and locate yourself in one of those. If you've got questions, I'm sure you do. If I stirred something up, talk to one of your other leaders. They can, they can field it, all right? Let's pray. Father, we laugh, but we are, are overjoyed and thrilled of just how carefully clear you shepherd us through your word. You've given us your spirit to illuminate your truth to us, to cause us to walk in your ways. And we are grateful now, and we will be eternally grateful when we behold you like we sang. When Christ returns to earth and we bow and we're raised from the dead, if if we've already died, we're glorified. Every nation comes to you, every president, every every proud person is humbled. We come to the King and you exalt us as your people, as your church, to reign over the nations. What a day that's going to be. You're the Lord of the church. We love you. We pray that you're pleased with us. We pray that you use this message for your glory and the good of the church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we've got some snacks in the back, so make sure you go eat those. And uh, let's hang out. I'll be around for a while, so let's talk.